my wife and I are celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. And whatever we do to celebrate, it's not going to be nearly as memorable as the first time round. If you don't know my wife, she loves to plan parties. She likes to get everything together. She likes to prep. She likes to prepare. She wants to make it beautiful. And I said, how can I help out during the wedding? And she said, you can book the honeymoon. I thought, okay, don't screw this one thing up. And so I looked at her and I said, what, what do you want to happen in the honeymoon? And she goes, I want a beach. I want an ocean, and I don't want to cook. And by the way, here's a travel agent. I said, okay, this should be simple enough. So I call up the travel agent. I say, here's my budget. We make arrangements. And uh, the day after our wedding, we're flying down to Cancun. Now, I haven't, I haven't traveled much in my life. I haven't been to Europe much or seen other parts of the world. So it was a pretty big deal for me to come into Cancun and see this beautiful beach. The resorts lining the beach, the palm trees. We get off the plane. There's a shuttle waiting for us. They, they have their names in front of their chests like you see on TV shows or movies. We pull up to the resort. They've got our honeymoon suite ready. It's wonderful. A day or two in, I look at my wife and I say, this isn't the resort I booked. And she looks at me and she's like, you're crazy. We, got, we had the plane tickets. We had the shuttle driver. We have the honeymoon suite. What are you talking about? And I said, you know how you watch TV, you watch a movie, and they, they have a picture of what you're going to buy or the place you're going to visit, and then it goes away and it shows what it really looks like in person? I said, yeah, it's not even that close. She said, you're crazy. And I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to do nothing. And so I went and I talked to some people, and they said, no, we have your reservation here. This is where you need to be, and we recognize it might not be what you expected. We'll even upgrade you to a nicer suite. And I thought, sure, that sounds great. So we get back home to Edmonton, and I open up my email, and I look at what the travel agent sent me, and I said, she didn't send me where I booked to go. And I immediately call my wife, Jenna, and I said, we didn't go where they booked us. And she said, you're out of your mind. So I email it to the travel agent. She gets it, calls me back within 15 minutes, and goes, oh my goodness, I booked you at the wrong resort. I wasn't going to sit back and do nothing. I wasn't really complaining. I wanted to do something. She gave us a travel voucher for the entire cost of our honeymoon. It worked out okay. How many times do we have things that happen in our life? Maybe you've seen that quote before, and it says, life is 20% uh, what happens to you, 80% how you respond. And you come out of the grocery store, you come out of the mall, and you come to your car, and you recognize somebody totally hit me in the parking lot. Now, you can choose to do nothing and just kind of carry on with your day. You can choose to get really angry and bitter, but that's not going to help anything. Or you can call your insurance company and get a payout and do whatever needs to get done. But sometimes there's big events that are really positive that happen too. You're offered a promotion at work, but you don't quite know if you want it or not. So you're sitting on the fence and you're going back and forth and eventually it just passes you by. Or you actually get a little disappointed and you say, well... It's not really the compensation I was hoping for, and I really like my peers. I don't know how they're going to respond to me as their boss. Or you could look at it and say, what an opportunity I have in this organization. I could really make some change, and some really great things could come of it. There's one big event that everybody has to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? And you can sit back, and you can choose to do nothing, and things will come and go, and you'll see what happens after you pass away. You could be really negative about it and say, okay, I'm going to commit my life to Jesus because I think this is real. But Jesus, if I think there's government overreach, you're excessive 
I'm not going to give you every part of my life. That's crazy. Jesus, I've read what you wrote in your book about this whole idea of a sexual ethic. Nobody believes that in the 21st century. Jesus, what you're expecting of me is way too much. Or you could say, if this God loves me this much, how am I going to respond? How am I going to take this love of Jesus and apply it to my own life and see the difference that it's going to make? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Luke and this whole idea of a game changer. Thank you for how much you love us. Thank you for how much you challenge us. And God, I pray that my words would fall down, that yours would be lifted up. And that as we talk about Peter's confession of Jesus, that it would be changing for all of us wherever we are on our spiritual journey. We pray that our eyes would be opened, as would our hearts and minds, to see what you want us to see, to hear what you want us to hear, to respond the way you want us to respond. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. There should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you're watching online, you can grab one of your devices. Um, the uh, Gospel of Luke is in the New Testament, meaning it's about the life of Jesus. Uh, big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. Now, last week, we had a little bit of Bible trivia. I said, are there, there are two miracles that are the same in all four Gospels and only two. One's the resurrection. One is the feeding of the 5,000. And right after the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is this idea of Peter's confession to Jesus. It's not quite the same in John's gospel, but there is something that takes place. It's a little more solemn. Jesus is telling about how um, life is going to change if you follow him, and a whole bunch of his disciples leave, but not the 12 disciples. And so he looks at Peter and the others, and he says, what are you going to do? And Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. But for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have a different story. This is theirs from Luke chapter 9, picking up in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then he said to him, them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of God. There are some big events that have happened in Luke chapter 9 and proceeding in chapter 8. Last week, the feeding of the 5,000 with just five loaves of bread and a couple of fishes, but in chapter 8, huge miracles. We've seen a girl raised from the dead. Jesus is in a boat and he stands up and he calms the storm with a word. A man doesn't just have one demon, but what we read, a legion of demons. The disciples following that, these events go out and minister, and then they come back and say, Jesus, in your name, people are being healed. In your name, demons are fleeing. In your name, people are saying what he has to offer is so much different than what we've heard before. After all of this, Jesus looks at the 12 disciples and says, who do people say that I am? Peter replies, John the Baptist, others say Elijah and one of the prophets. And the crowds kind of get it. They recognize Jesus is a powerful prophet and they're not wrong, but he's so much more than that. But I think it asks this question that we can um, come forward 2,000 years and we need to start wrestling with ourselves. Who is Jesus? Now, I don't want to go into great detail about what was happening 2,000 years ago. I want to talk about what's happening right now. 
That survey that we um, took, and David just talked about a couple minutes ago, uh, was interesting. After week one, we've learned a couple of things. 87% of our church family has been a Christian for more than two years, which means 13% of the church family watching online and in person have been a Christian for less than two years or are seekers trying to find out who is Jesus. What does this mean? What does it look like? But it also means for 87% of us, we need to remind ourselves, how are we going to talk about Jesus with others? And so I thought this idea, who is Jesus, is really unique, and how are people going to answer that question today? There's something called the Alpha video, which uh, the Alpha course, which is interactive sessions on uh, who is Jesus. You watch videos, you eat food, you're involved in a group of people. It's really great. Here's a clip. Who is Jesus? Uh, uh, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, I believe he was a person. Um, he's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. The son of God. If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Uh, he plays on the wing for Chelsea. If you read the Bible, I, I don't think I could believe in all of that. Everything. <laughs> you can be any, but for me, he's everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so... I mean, he, I guess he's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. There are some really great answers there. As a soccer player, my favorite answer is he plays on the wing for Chelsea, which means he's a soccer player for one of English's, uh, England's best clubs. Now, I think the answers are interesting. And I think the answers aren't terribly different than what we would um, get if we asked our own friends or family members or people that we're close to. Who do you think Jesus is? Have you noticed none of those answers were negative? Now, you could argue, well, the director just does whatever he wants, and that's fair. But none of them were negative. He's a great teacher. Maybe he's the son of God. He's a good man, and it just kind of snowballed from there. But people generally speak positively about him. The author, C.S. Lewis, doesn't just want the question to stay there, though. He wants to challenge the assumption and dig a little bit deeper. He writes, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This quote from C.S. Lewis is often boiled down to a really short question. Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic or is he Lord? Now, I'm not going to go into great detail. I'll spend a minute on each of those ideas. But if you're interested in this and you're thinking, I want to know how to share the gospel more effectively, the Alpha Course is great. I want to learn more about who Jesus is. The Alpha Course is great. I'm seeking and I don't know who Jesus is or what to expect. The Alpha Course is great. But let's tackle this one first. Jesus is a liar. Now, in one minute, that director can do whatever he wants. I think all of us have watched at least a little bit of reality TV, and we know that to be true. But he's emphasizing the point. People are coming with all sorts of different ideas 
Who is Jesus? How do we respond? Most people think he's a great teacher. My Muslim friends even speak highly of Jesus, saying he's a good teacher or he's a prophet. World-class philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche are overwhelmingly antagonistic towards Christianity and still go, but Jesus is great. One of these world-class philosophers is a man by the name of John Stuart Mill, a philosopher, a skeptic, strongly against Christianity. And yet he says, Jesus Christ is a first-rate ethicist. To paraphrase a rather academic portion of his writing, Jesus is the perfect example of all that he taught. His words and actions are a perfect match. This is a man who thinks Christianity is a sham. And yet there's this idea, and you hear about it in the Gospels as well, where Jesus says, uh, I have not come to be, ser to, um, to be served, but to be serve others and to be a ransom for many. There's this in invitation that Jesus has. He doesn't want to be this big political powerhouse. He doesn't want to be a military warrior. He has come to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So maybe Jesus isn't a liar. Maybe he's a lunatic. Maybe he um, actually believes these truths, but no one believes them about him. Another philosopher, this time a Christian one, Peter Kreeft, says this, a measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. He continues, if I think I'm the greatest philosopher in America, I'm an arrogant fool. If I think I am Napoleon, I'm probably over the edge. If I think I am a butterfly, I'm fully embarked from the sunny shores of sanity. But if I think I am God... I'm even more insane between the gap, because the gap between anything infinite and finite is, um, is even greater than the gap between any two finite things, even man and a butterfly. But when we're introduced to this person of Jesus, he seems completely in his right mind, but he's so incredibly different than anything the world has seen before. He has incredible character. The people who follow him says, this guy doesn't sin. He has wisdom. He has power. He cares deeply about people. He's loving. He's considerate. He cares about everyone he interacts with. He stops and he deals with the people of low estate. He stops and he deals with people of high estate. He gives his life as a ransom for many. You cannot read the Gospels and possibly walk away and think Jesus is a man who has completely lost his marbles. Is he the Lord? He looks at his 12 disciples and says, but who do you say I am? Peter replies, you are the Christ. This is interesting. So far in the book of Luke, Jesus' identity has been confessed by angels, confessed by the narrator, by demons, and by Jesus himself. But this is the first time any of the disciples have verbally made a confession of faith. Last week, I talked about how one of my regular prayers for us as a church is that we would have an invitational culture, that we would want to engage with people in our lives to tell them about the good news of Jesus. But sometimes I think we respond by going, well, Pastor, we don't know how. We don't know how to share the faith, or we don't feel confident inviting people to church, or we don't know the, the theological background the way that other people might have. Two comments for you. One, you need to practice. The life of Jesus is the biggest event in world history, and it demands a response. So whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's coworkers, whether it's neighbors, whether it's people we go to school with, we need to share the gospel. Because friends, if we don't, they're going to hell. And how often do we think about those ramifications? 
And you might push back and go, well, pastor, pastor, it, it might be awkward for us, and it probably will be. But the first time at your new job is awkward. The first time you step on skates to go skating, it's awkward. The first time you kiss somebody, it's a little bit awkward. But the more you do it, the more comfortable it gets. Second thing, remove the barriers. For many, I, for many people, we, we quickly dismiss this idea and we go, okay, well, we shared some, the, our faith with somebody. They said no, and my job here is done. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can ask them, well, what are the barriers stopping you from believing? I read a book on evangelism a number of years ago, and that one line has stood out for me for years. Maybe the barriers aren't that big. And maybe you don't know the answer, but you can go back and you can read about it or talk to your small group about it or set up a meeting with a pastor about it and say, I don't know how to respond. What's the good news here? Because maybe next time they'll say, that's fascinating. And I want to know more. After Peter answered Jesus' question and confessed, well, you are the Christ, Jesus knew there was still more to teach them. The disciples needed to learn that the Messiah is probably different than what they expect. So who is Jesus? He is the crucified Christ. This is the next part of our passage this morning. Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He will be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But don't tell anyone. Can you, can you imagine talking with one of your really good friends and they say, oh man, I've got the juiciest piece of gossip. And you kind of lean in, even though you know you shouldn't, and they tell you something and your eyes go wide and you think, that's amazing. And they say, you can't tell anybody. Really, Jesus? You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You've been sent to save the world and you don't want us to tell anybody about that? I think the commentator Daryl Bach says this really well. God's plan for the Messiah is contrary to the disciples' expectations about the Messiah. So nearly every week we've talked about this idea how the Jews, especially the zealot Jews, are thinking we want to help Jesus. We want to take the Messiah and help conquer all of Rome. This is what the Messiah is supposed to do, isn't it? He's supposed to overcome all these difficult challenges that we're facing and, and bring us back to that restored glory when David and Solomon were king. But that's not the case. Jesus didn't come as a political powerhouse. He didn't come as a military warrior. But everybody thinks he did. If word got out that, <clears throat> if word got out that Jesus was the Messiah, there would be these Jewish nationalistic expectations. And it would make ministry difficult because everybody would be expecting him to become king. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to do three things. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. This is not the Messiah that people are expecting. In fact, in Mark's gospel, this is where Mark says, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. But Jesus responds by saying this. When Jesus looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, we might sit here 2,000 years later and say, but there's lots of times in the Bible that it talks about the Messiah's suffering, isn't there? But there's not. You see, these Jews and these men and women who study the scriptures, they would recognize that there's supposed to be a suffering servant. But it never says the Messiah is going to suffer. 
So the Jews read this and they go, of course the prophets are going to suffer. Isaiah did and Jeremiah did and so many others did besides them, but not the Messiah. We read these passages in Christmas from Isaiah chapter nine that talk about the anticipation of Jesus coming. But in Isaiah 53, it talks about the suffering that's going to come as well. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And so the disciples might have thought this and said, okay, well, of course Jesus is going to be killed. Some street gang is going to take him behind the proverbial woodshed and said, I've had enough. No more of this forgiveness. No more of this grace. No more of this love stuff. We're going to put an end to you. But that's not what happens. The tax collectors are infatuated with Jesus. In fact, Matthew, the one who wrote the first gospel in the New Testament, was a tax collector. The prostitutes receive forgiveness and they want to spend time with him. The poor are captivated by his message. And he says, it's not those who you think are going to kill me. It's going to be the priests. It's going to be the scholars. It's going to be the teachers in the temple. And they are going to do so totally above board. They are going to arrest me with official warrants, the execution under the eye of the governor, and the Messiah will be killed. Is Jesus a liar? His contemporaries didn't think so. Is Jesus a lunatic? He seemed of stable mind and the people wanted to put him to death because of it. Is he Lord? I believe he is. And it is a total game changer. See, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we hear that and we go, okay, well, if we've fallen short, we can, we can pay him back somehow, but there is no monetary way of doing so. Well, maybe we can, we can earn it. We'll be really, really good from this point forward, and that doesn't work either. At my house, we use treats and video games as kind of a carrot or a stick, depending on the time. And if my kids are bad, they'll say, can we earn it back? We'll be really, really good. We'll do whatever you ask. Just don't take away video games. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And Jesus says, there's only one thing that can happen. It has to be paid for with blood. And our 21st century ears might hear this and go, that's weird. But it's not weird in the first century. Every religion, every cult, every temple had regular sacrifice. And if you wanted to please that God, you would sacrifice something, some sort of animal, maybe your child, depending on the temple, so that the gods would be okay with you. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to even pay for it with your own blood. I will do it for you. The author of Hebrews says the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Jesus is saying, let me shed my blood for you so you don't have to. And if you believe in me, you're welcomed into an eternal paradise. Who is Jesus? He is the crucified Christ. And it demands a response. And if you're here in person, if you're watching online, the response can't be, I will do nothing. Because that will transform your eternal destination for worse. And some of you might be here and you say, okay, well, I have committed my life to Jesus. What does that mean next? Because I don't know if my attitude is really ready for, for it. 
And Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's actually gonna call in all the crowds, not just the 12, and he's going to say, here's what it means. There's a cost to following me. And it's absolutely worth it. He said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We don't really catch it here in Mark's gospel. It's a little more obvious. It says, then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. They have a like account. And usually they uh, tell the same stories, but they do so in different ways with different slants to get their message across to the different people they're writing to. Here it's word for word identical in all three gospels. They say the exact same thing. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. When we get to this Christmas season and this time of Advent, there is this time of anticipation. We're waiting for something to happen. Easter is different. During this time of Lent, it's a time of of preparation, of reminding ourselves of the sacrifice that Jesus went through. And I'm grateful for our staff team who said, hey, let's really lean into it this year. And let's talk about different ideas that might be challenging for us as a staff and a church family to really work through during this Lent season. We hope that over the six weeks, we give six challenges that are going to reach you in different ways. Now, some of you, social media might not even remotely be a challenge. That's okay. Go back to no TV, no junk food, no radio, whatever the case might be. But I said to myself, I'm going to be all in each week for each of these challenges. Now, I don't watch a lot of TV. I only watch about 30 minutes a day, which is probably a lot less than the national average. But it was still really hard. The Oilers were on a five-game winning streak, and I didn't see any highlights. It was March Madness on Thursday and Friday. I didn't watch a single minute of any game. So this was real dedication for me. And on Monday night, I had a couple long meetings, and then I thought, okay, I'm just going to sit down and spend some time. I can't because of Lent. And I was a little bit bitter, and I ended up just working harder. And I went to bed exhausted. And I woke up, and first thing in the morning, I spent some time with God, and I said, God, I'm tired. And I can't do this all week. It's too hard to not watch TV. It was as though the divine mentor just said to me, Dave, I didn't ask you to give up TV to work. I asked you to give up TV for me. Tonight when you go home, instead of thinking about missing a TV show with your wife, ask her to sit down with you for those 30 minutes and pray. And it was beautiful. And we did it a couple times, not every night, but a couple times this past week. And I thought, how great is this? But it's hard because I wanted to watch Euler highlights. I wanted to watch our regular show on Netflix. I wanted to play the new video game somebody got me. (laughs) Will we deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him? This passage is a pivotal moment in the Gospels. 
In the Gospel of Mark, it's 16 chapters long. This happens at the end of chapter 8. It's the climax. It goes up to the point and down to this point. In the Gospel of Luke, it's a little bit different. In chapters 4 to 9, we have the journey around Galilee, and at the end of this time in Galilee is when it takes place. Chapters 10 to 19 are the journey to Jerusalem, so it is still a watershed moment. It happens in all four Gospels. Peter, disciples, how are you going to respond? In three of those Gospels, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, I think we hear that word cross and we immediately go to Golgotha and we think, okay, Jesus carried his cross to that hill. But it got me thinking, how many times is the word cross mentioned up to that point in the Gospels? And so I looked at Matthew, I looked at Mark, I looked at Luke, not once. So I thought, okay, maybe, maybe crucified is mentioned. Matthew, Mark, Luke, not once. I thought, well, that's fascinating. What does that mean? It means the disciples knew Jesus was going to die, but they had no idea how he was going to die. See, we look at this cross and we go, okay, well, for many of us, it's just a really nice piece of jewelry, but first century readers would look at it totally different than that. The cross was a picture of Roman oppression, an instrument of cruelty, dehumanization, and shame. The cross is reserved for the lowest social classes, for criminals and slaves. The cross is a picture of the strength of Rome, and anybody who stood against her will be penalized. In 71 BC, the Roman general Crassus defeated a slave rebellion. Do you know what he did with those slaves? Crucified them. And you hear that and you go, okay, so there was what, 25, 50, maybe 100 of them? 6,000 slaves crucified along the highway between Rome and Capua. Take up our cross? Jesus, are you crazy? I think this is huge. Cross-bearing publicly displayed a person's submission to the state. In carrying your cross, you submit to the authority of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, will you follow me? Am I Lord or is Caesar Lord? Am I Lord or is your boss Lord? Am I Lord or do you submit to your family? As followers of Jesus, he's saying, where is your allegiance? Your allegiance should be in following Jesus. Two questions to consider. Are you becoming more like Jesus? And are you making disciples of Jesus? The survey that we're talking about, it it's not something the board asked me to do. It's not so I can put a feather in my cap or anything of that sort. It's because Joel, David, and myself care so deeply about discipleship. And we want to know, are we making disciples? So now we have a baseline. We'll probably do this survey next year. And how can we better make disciples? Because we want to exist to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. We believe that the good news of Jesus is a transforming gospel that impacts everybody who hears it. We believe in courageous community. We believe that there's this generous worship that's taking place. We believe that it's an inescapable mission. And we believe this survey is also for you. That when you click it off and you open it up and you go, okay, do I have a meaningful relationship in this church? I don't, but I want to. Do you believe that you can share the gospel and do you have ideas of how to do that? I don't, but I want to. 
Do you have a group of people who cares about you deeply? I do. And it's changing my life. How can we become more like Jesus? Well, um, you can ask to meet with somebody regularly. Maybe it's a small group, maybe it's a mentor, maybe you want to read a really great book or to find an area to serve or a class to take. Are you making disciples for Jesus? We grow the most when we challenge ourselves. Invite someone over for coffee. Start your own alpha group. Connect with people at the Welcome Center and say, I want to engage in community. How great would it be if everybody in our church, every single one of us, came to church, yes, to meet with God, yes, to sing the songs, yes, to partake in prayer together, yes, to hear the message, but we're also coming because we have a meaningful relationship here at church. I can't wait to meet with my friend because I want to ask him how his speech went the other night. I can't wait to talk with my friends and ask them how their holiday went. I can't wait to tell them what happened at work. Man, I've got this great story. I just can't wait to talk to them about it. But to recognize to do this is hard work. And Jesus says, if you want to experience what that looks like, you're gonna have to give up yourself. And I was looking at different ways to say this and I thought, you know, the the last page of C.S. Lewis' marvelous work, Mere Christianity, says this incredibly well. Listen to what he says. There must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real self, the new self, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters, even in social life. You will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth, you will nine times out of ten become original with ever even noticing. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit of death death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that you have not died will ever be raised back from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. How are we going to respond? For some of you, you're thinking, well, I haven't made a decision yet. The time is now. What are the barriers stopping you from believing in Jesus? If you're like, Dave, one 30-minute sermon ain't going to change my life. Fine. Come to Alpha. Talk to somebody at the Welcoming Center. If you're online, fill out a connecting card and say, I want to talk to one of the pastors. If you've already committed your life to Jesus, do you have a bad attitude about that and just say, ah, just Jesus wants more of my life. You're not going to get that much, Jesus. You get 90 minutes, leave the rest to me. Or do you say, I want to be all in. I believe that this is life transforming work. I believe in the good news of Jesus, that he died for our sins, that he rose three days later and that he's coming back, but that even right now he's working with us to give everyone around us a taste of heaven. 
Why the sermon intro? Why the story of my honeymoon and a bizarre occurrence that took place? I could have chosen a hundred different stories. Here's why I chose that one. Because something better is coming. And as hard as it might seem right now, Jesus is inviting you in to something even better. And that's a game changer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel in Luke chapter nine. Thank you for these challenging words, and they are not easy words to be certain, and all of us have fallen short on more than one occasion. But you are the God who loves us deeply. You are the God who forgives us when we fall short, and you are the God who inspires us and fills us with your Holy Spirit to take up our cross, to take up your cross every day, and to follow you. So God, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit to do good things, to speak good things, to say good things so that you would be glorified, that we would lose our life so that you would be glorified and in doing so that we would find the hope in Jesus Christ that we so desperately need. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name, amen.